Welcome to Seacoast. I love the energy when you guys are friendly like that. All right, pray with me as we turn to God's Word together. Father, thank You for Your Word. Wow, thank You for the incredible truth that You tell us. Thank You for the journey that You have been on with, uh, with Your people. In this case, Father, our study of Your journey with the people of Israel. And, and Father, we are uh, children of Abraham. I mean, we're spiritually children of this great nation. So we pray that as we study this story of Ezra, that you would uh, teach us about them, most of all, teach us about yourself, and then teach us about our relationship with you. We ask you to do those three things, and all God's people said, amen, amen. Welcome, welcome. Open your Bibles to Ezra chapter 3 today, Ezra chapter 3, and there is an outline as always to help you if you'd like to track along, perhaps take a few notes as well. You know, the question I want to ask as we begin is this. What if a friend uh, or a neighbor, uh, maybe if you're still a student, a classmate, someone at work, or even more challenging, what if one of your kids, if you're a parent, And they came to you and they said this. They said, you know, I want to get my life together. And I feel like I need a fresh start. I'm not happy with the way things are. I need a fresh, I need something different. I need a fresh start in my life. I feel like I need to build a new life that's better than what I've had up to this date. And I want to get it right this time. Where should I start? What would you say to them? Now, and don't just give me the quick, easy Jesus answer. Okay, well, I'd say go to Jesus. That's, we're going to see that's certainly part of it. But what would you say to them if they ask you, would you coach me through how to get on the right track? when you're starting to rebuild your life? What would you click off? So if you're sitting there right now and you're kind of like me and you're maybe wondering, well, I'm not sure what I would say. I'd say go talk to Pastor Ryan. <laughs> He'll help you out. But now what if Pastor Ryan is not an option? What if Pastor Dale's not an option? What if it's just you? One of your kids, and they're really honestly asking, how do I build the life that God wants me to have? How do I get the right start? The people of Israel have been on a journey, and it's been a painful one. But I think that's the question that they're asking in today's passage. And in fact, they're not just asking the question, they're answering that question for us. So we're going to look at how they tried to take their first steps to rebuilding their life as the people of God. And then we're going to look at what was the heart behind those first steps. 
In other words, what are some of the heart issues that was wrapped up in it, you know? Because that's kind of where life is lived, is at the heart level usually. So what was their first steps? What was the heart issues behind it? And then thirdly, so how does that apply to us today in a whole different time and place? So that's where we're going. The people of Israel were called by God on a mission. That mission was a global mission to be His people, to show the world His truth, so that the world... And every culture on planet Earth is born intuitively wondering, what is the truth about God? And what's my truth about God? And and what can I know about the true God? And, And who is He? And how does He think? And how do I have a relationship with Him if it's even possible? Those are the questions that every human being that comes out of the womb asks those questions, right? We all do. It's universal because it's inbred in us. It's born into us as spiritual beings created in the image of God. Even though we're fallen into sin, we all wonder about those things in every culture around the world. So God had a plan. The plan was this. I'm going to not just reveal myself to the whole world. I want to reveal myself especially in a relationship with a people called my people. In this case, the people of Israel. And then through you, Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, we mention it often because it's the backdrop to everything you're reading in this book. He said, I want you to be my people. I will bless you. I will multiply you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you so that you might be a blessing to every nation on planet Earth. Blessed to be a blessing. That's the idea behind this thing. And they got off to a great start. They had their ups and their downs as you read through the, the, uh, the, the early books of the Old Testament. Eventually they come to where they want a king and God provides a king. And, and then they have a, a grand good run under a guy named David. And under David they begin to grow as a nation and become strong and, and successful and prosperous. And, but David has his own sins. Remember that? So he has an affair with this lady. He murders her husband. So God says, you're not going to build me a temple, but yet I have a plan to have a grand temple that will be in the midst of my people and their nation, and this, te- this temple will represent my presence before you. And it's not that I can be contained in a temple, but it represents my presence, and it represents a place where you, in a very special way, can come and worship me and learn of me. And, 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 and David's son Solomon takes their kingdom to another level of wealth and success, and he builds this grand temple, which we'll show you again in a minute. We showed it to you last week. But then the backdrop to Ezra goes downhill from there. They have several kings over Israel. They use the same phrase. And king so-and-so did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And king so-and-so did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the nation, in the midst of peace and prosperity, walked away from God. And you're going to see that pattern all through the Bible. When we have peace and prosperity, we become kind of arrogant, and we think, who needs God? And we begin to drift away from God. It's something that happens in our personal lives as well. So it happened in the life of Israel. And it got so bad that God said, I've got to get your attention, so I'm going to discipline you painfully in order to draw you back to me. The discipline took the form of the Babylonian Empire. The Babylonian Empire comes in in 586 and, 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 and conquers them and takes 70,000 of their best and brightest into exile. 
Then the Babylonians get their backside kicked by the Persian Empire. And now Cyrus, as the big dog of the Persian Empire, the biggest empire on planet Earth at the time, uh, is now the big guy in the time of Ezra's beginning. And we learned from Ryan two weeks ago how Cyrus, by God's sovereign moving his, in his heart, issues a decree that releases the Jews to go back to Israel, resettle their land, and with the specific assignment, and build a temple for your God. Something about their God impressed Cyrus, even as a pagan king. So they did. So they go back, and they begin to release them to go back. And this is the first wave that's just now gone back. They've just gotten back into the land, the first wave, about 50,000 strong. And as they re-enter the land as refugees returning home, you might say, after 50 years out of their country, most of these returnees, we learned last week, are people that had never even been in the land. They were probably mostly, there were a few old folks like Pastor Dale, who had been old enough to barely remember it. Although if it was me, even I pointed out, they had to be older than me. Because I, you know, if, if my parents had been taken into exile, I would have been born in that land, okay? So, or else I would have been taken as a very young child, and now I'm returning, and maybe my children or my grandchildren are returning. And, but now they have to get started actually rebuilding the temple and rebuilding the land and rebuilding the city to be again a people walking with God. So what do they do first? Here's the story. We're going to look at the story and see why it is that we call this thing. In fact, let me show you a logo. The logo of the series is right in the middle of this cool Ezra with the building blocks. That all makes sense. Did you notice right in the middle of our logo, it says God at the center. And it's a great title that, uh, that Ryan and the creative team came up with for the series because that's what this is about. It's not just about building the building. It's going to be about that, but it's really about building your life, building their life and getting God back in the center of the life of the people of Israel. And we're going to learn from that today. So pick up their story first. Worship, putting God at the center is what I call it. It involves three quick steps. The passage is fairly short, so let me just read it and show you the three steps, and then we'll talk about them. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now when the seventh month came, this is in the fall on the Jewish calendar, when the seventh month came and the sons of Israel were in the cities, in other words, they're scattered around resettling the various cities that they each came from, the people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. They're all called together. <clears throat> so these 50,000 people gather back together in Jerusalem. Then Jeshua, the son of Josedach, and his brothers, the priests. So he is, of course, the leader of the priestly clan. And Zerubbabel, the son of Shelatil, and his brothers arose and built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. So they set up the altar on its foundation, for they were terrified because of the peoples of the lands. Now just kind of notice that, by the way. Why would they be terrified? They're just the refugees now returning. You've got to realize, when they returned, they weren't greeted necessarily with a big welcome parade. 
Like, wow, welcome home. We're so glad we missed you. No, the fact of the matter is while you're gone for 50 years, what happens to the land? Someone else takes it. Someone else is living there. And in fact, the Babylonians often did two things to cement their control of conquered regions. They took the best and the brightest of the people they conquered, took them into exile. Okay, that's the exile. They also would often transplant others into that region to make sure that they had people loyal to them, controlled by them. So you've had people move into this vacuum of a lack of... uh, of this, of this land, the promised land. So you've got outsiders who have moved in. You've got insiders who stayed behind and probably took control of different areas. And the reality is for these 50,000 to show up and to say, we're here to rebuild the temple, reestablish the land, reestablish order, you know, blah, blah, blah. That's not a popular idea with the folks that have been living off the land for 50 years. So they're afraid. They know that some of the people might rise up against them. There is a threat that they're living in the midst of. We'll come back to that later. So just notice how this comes down. First, they rebuild the altar. First, they rebuild the altar. Now, remember the picture we showed you last week of the temple? Just east of the temple uh, was the altar for sacrifices that was built, and it was actually lined with bronze and it was, it was made for the ongoing sacrifice of animal sacrifice, which was established very early on in the life of Israel as a part of their worship. Now, it's something that a lot of us today would be kind of offended by. Like, why in the world would God take innocent animals and sacrifice them? Well, we're going to see in a minute why that is true. But just keep in mind, that was a part of their worship routine, was to bring to God... Uh, animals to be sacrificed on an altar as burnt offerings as a symbol of their own need for forgiveness. The idea is that we sin and the wages or penalty for sin is death. And if we're not going to die, then we bring God a sacrifice which dies on our behalf, is sacrificed on our behalf as a symbol of our forgiveness that we so desperately need from God. Okay? Now keep in mind, later on, we're going to see Jesus show up and say, I am the Lamb of God. I am the Lamb of God, sent to be sacrificed for the sins of the world. We're going to see in a minute why we don't have an altar out here in the plaza. But they did, and it was very central to their worship. So they, they, they first, before they ever even begin to, to rebuild the foundation of the temple, they build the altar first. That's what I want you to catch. Then they resume their sacrifices, verse 3. So they set up the altar on its foundation, for they were terrified because of the peoples of the lands, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening, every day. They celebrated the Feast of Booths, which was another religious tradition that they had once a year. As it is written, underline the phrase, as it is written, and offered the fixed number of burnt offerings daily according to the ordinance or according to the law of God. That's the idea. As each day required. And afterwards, there was a continual burnt offering also for the new moons, also for all the fixed festivals of the Lord. There were There were several major um, weeks, week-long activities 
of worship that were a part of the uh, religious um, routine of the Jewish people, commanded in the laws of God's word for them. And the point is this, don't get hung up on the details here as much as notice what's going on. Is they're reestablishing the worship rhythms of their country. So they reestablish, they rebuild the altar, they begin to offer sacrifices, are resumed, and then in verses 4 to 6, he oversee, oversees, uh, overlays the, this, this idea that, okay, they begin to do all the, practice all their worship, all the worship traditions called for in the scriptures when, upon new moons, upon all the fixed festivals of the Lord, and from everyone who offered a free will offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord had not yet been laid. We're going to pull up there for today's story. So, you ready to go home? So now do you understand how to get your life back on track? Answer, buy a goat. Build an altar. Build a fire. And offer it to the Lord. At least if this is the only story we had in Scripture, that's what I'd go home and do. So if we don't have a goat and we don't have an altar, what do we learn from this? How do we really use this to help us understand what they were doing and why they were doing it and what we should do? Here's the answer. First, you focus on the heart. What were the heart issues? We saw the actions that they took, but now let's move to the second part of your outline. And I've given it to you in a box because I knew on some of this, I wouldn't have time to give it all to you. So I'm giving it to you so it'll make it a little easier for you to keep up with me. Here we go. <clears throat> what they did was they were putting God back in the center of their life. There were at least five ways in which they were doing this. Number one, they, they were demonstrating to God their heart to trust and obey him. Three times in the passage, it uses the phrase, they did this just as it was written. They did this just as written in the ordinance of God. They did this in obedience to God. So the point is this. They went back to the word of God and they said, this time we're going to follow God's word exactly. They paid attention to God's commands and said, God, we're going to trust you and our trust is shown in our obedience. That was their heart. God, we realize that the reason we went into exile was we disobeyed you, walked away from you, and disobeyed your word and chased after other false gods, and, and, and therefore we went into exile. We don't want to do that again. They illustrated a heart to trust and obey. Number two, they, they demonstrated their heart to be forgiven by offering sacrifices for sin every morning, every evening, in keeping with all of their festivals. There was always the sacrifice of an innocent for their sin. We'll see why in a minute. Number three, they illustrated a heart to never again forget. It specifically mentions that they celebrated the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. It's the same thing. Uh, and this was a feast that basically went for seven days where they were to move out of their house, build um, small booths, or picture it as small tents, 
basically you kind of went into the countryside, you built a tent, and you camped out for a week, and you worshiped, and you offered offerings, and you brought free will offerings, and you, and you said thanks to God for what he has done. It was a means of them remembering God's faithfulness to them in the past. When they had to journey, when they had no homeland, when they had to live on the road, on the journey, and trust God to meet their needs daily. It was, it's, it's one of those great religious traditions that they had. That, but underneath it is, don't forget how God has cared for you in the past. Don't forget His faithfulness in the midst of your journeys. And, and, and that, was, that was their heart. It says, it emphasizes at the end that they were each bringing free will offerings to the Lord. That illustrates a heart to give thanks. You know, because in, in the Jewish rhythm of giving, uh, first they were required to offer to the Lord what was called the first fruits of their life. In other words, the first 10%, it was a tithe, means 10%, they gave back to God the first 10% of whatever he provided for them. Now, in our case, that would be like a salary. And it's a very healthy giving habit and rhythm. Becky and I have been doing that for a bunch of years. She started it uh, when she was a young child, and her parents gave her a dollar a week. She put a dime every week in a little envelope and wrote Becky on it and dropped it. She didn't even put her last name and dropped it in the offering plate in her church because she wanted to give back to God 10% of what he gave to her. It's a discipline that Becky and I have followed over our lives, and God has always met our needs. Now, if you've never heard of this or never done it, I know this would freak you out financially, some of you. But let me tell you something. It is taught in God's Word, and it's a great discipline to say, you know, Lord, I'm going to begin by just simply saying, I'm going to bring my tithes to you to say two things. One is, <clears throat> I want to give you what you've have given to me, but they always did it first. They were called um, first fruits giving because they often weren't just giving currency. In fact, they seldom were giving currency. Their currency was what? As an agricultural community. It was their crops, right? So they would bring the first 10% of the grape harvest or the first 10% of the grain harvest or, and they would bring it to the temple as, as a means of an offering. Or if they had new uh, baby lambs, they would bring the first lings the firstborn of their lambs and offer it to the lord give it to the lord you know so and what it does is it demonstrates faith because when you're a farmer and you're relying upon your harvest to pay the bills and care for your family it'd be tempting to give the last 10 percent, right because i want to make sure it all comes in first and then i'll give to the lord but see, this is, a, this is a spiritual discipline that has nothing to do with money or paying the bills at the church. It has to do with developing your spiritual life where you always say to the Lord, I trust you enough that I will give to you before I set my budget and pay the rest of my bills. And, and, and it's, a, it's a major teaching in scriptures. So I just wanted to pause on it for a minute. But they were bringing not only their tithes, then they said they had other gifts they gave, and then some of them even brought free will offerings. Because the tithe was commanded in the Old Testament. The free will offerings say, you know something, I've already given my tithe, but now I want to give God back some more because he's blessed me. Now these are people just returning from being refugees in another land. 
So they're not giving out of their wealth. Many of them are probably giving out of poverty. They're certainly giving out of uncertainty as they resettle the land. So why do they do this? They do it because they were incredibly thankful for God for what he had done. So they're bringing their offerings back to the Lord. And then finally, I just wanted you to notice, it says that they they built the altar first because they were terrified of their neighbors. They demonstrated a heart of courage to stand no matter what in spite of their fears. To stand no matter what and do what God was telling them to do. So that's their heart. So just kind of picture this. So now, hopefully you're beginning to get a picture. If someone asked me, Dale, how do I rebuild my life? What are the foundation steps to getting off to the right start to rebuild a life today? Let me walk you through that. You need a heart that is willing to trust and obey God, recognizes its need to be forgiven, needs a sacrifice for sin, wants to never forget what God has done in the past for you, and a heart that wants to be thankful, bringing your own offerings to the Lord out of gratitude. Not because you have to, but out of gratitude. And then has the courage to stand for your faith no matter what when you're surrounded by people that don't agree with you. Now I'm beginning to picture today's culture. So what are the actual steps if we apply this to our life now, living a couple thousand years after Jesus comes as the Messiah, as the Lamb of God, to sacrifice himself for our sins, and he rose from the dead. That changed a lot, right? It changed everything. What are the steps that we need to use to really build the life God wants us to have? And I'm going to walk you through them. Here we are. We need to basically do what they did. We need to put God at the center. But how do you do that? Number one, it begins by recognizing your need to be forgiven and accepting Christ as the final sacrifice for sin. Now, because I'm going to hit these passages quick, I'm going to pop them up on the screen, okay? I want you to get in the habit of bringing a Bible, bringing your iPad Bible, whatever, and tracking with me, but I'm going to give you these passages. Hebrews 10 says this, By this will we have been sanctified, through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. That is for all people, all sin, all time. Every priest, that is back then, they stood daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never really take away sin. In other words, they were symbolic of our need for a sacrifice, our need to be forgiven. But they didn't really take away their sin. But he, Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, has sat down now at the right hand of God, rose from the dead, ascended back to heaven, sits at the right hand of God as the one final sacrifice. See, every sacrifice in the Old Testament was pointing forward toward Jesus as the ultimate perfect sacrifice that could truly pay the penalty for your sins and my sins that's so basic so that's where it's got to start until i have a new relationship with god through jesus christ by coming to him by faith i have no hope of rebuilding the life god desires for me number two then we have a calling to still offer now ourselves 
as a daily living sacrifice. In other words, now in worship, we still want to bring sacrifices, but instead of to a fiery altar where we're going to burn them up, God says, and I love the language of Romans 12.1, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living, holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. So worship today is not about us bringing an animal to be sacrificed because no more sacrifices are needed because Jesus put an end to that. He was the final sacrifice. But God says, you can still be a sacrifice. Don't bring it, be it. See, be the sacrifice. And don't be a dead one. He's not looking for martyrs. Martyrs don't accomplish a whole lot after their martyrdom. I mean, sometimes maybe in history. But it's not about everyone being a martyr. It's about giving your life as a living sacrifice, laying yourself on the altar daily and saying, oh, Lord Jesus, I'm yours. Do with me as you wish. Use me. I'm yours. Now he's able to begin to, to rework our lives. Number three, then we need a heart of careful obedience like they had. I love that phrase, as it is written. Three times in one little short passage. They carefully followed God's word. Jesus calls us to do the same thing. John 15, 9 says this, Just as the Father has loved me, I also have loved you. So abide in my love. Rest in my love. Live in my love is the idea. And if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Now, it's not that obedience earns the love of God. That's not what he's teaching. What he's teaching is abiding in His love should motivate us by love, not fear, to want to follow Christ. And, and, and the greatest test is this. If you love me, keep my commandments. So obey, obedience is a is a very tangible a very tangible test as to how deep our love is. So Jesus says, let your love for me motivate you toward obedience. You know, one of the things our culture is most confused on today is this idea of what is truth. I was talking with someone recently about um, about Jesus and about life and trying to figure out how to explain to a person who's not a follower of Jesus Christ why we do what we do, why we believe what we believe. And, and what came out was they, they were kind of saying, well, I think this. And they said, well, well, I don't care. I think something different. And you believe you what you believe. I believe what I believe. So, so let's just all respect each other and just let it go, right? Okay, you've heard that? So I backed up a step and I said, you know, t time out. First of all, I never ask someone to follow what I think is true. At least not because I think it's true. What you want to do is to say to people, where do you find truth when you're asking about questions like God? about eternity, about morality, about sin, and about heaven and hell and everything else. Where do you find the truth about those things? And the answer has to be, well, I don't know, everybody has a different opinion. Guess what? 
every opinion means nothing, including Dale's opinion. What matters is, if there is a God, which I believe there is, who loves us enough to communicate with us, which I believe he does, then you would expect God to reveal truth to us. So it's not a matter of whose opinions are best. It's a matter of has God spoken? Has God written and sent to us truth? So the truth that we believe in as followers of Jesus Christ are, is the scriptures, and we believe there is very good evidence that the scriptures are the product of the inspiration of God, not just man. So obeying God is central to living life the way he wants us to live it. And unfortunately today, a lot of Christians want to approach the faith as if, well, I believe in Jesus, and I'm glad he died for my sins. That'll get me into heaven. But now I just want to live life however I want to live it. You know, I'll kind of pick and choose which parts of, of the teachings of Jesus and the word of God I want to follow. And that's a recipe for disaster. Careful obedience, a heart of careful obedience. Number five is a heart to remember and never forget that in Christ we are set free. This is why, this is why they celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles, was to remember how God had set them free. That's why they celebrated the Feast of Passover, that God had set them free from slavery to sin and, and in Egypt and, and we celebrate through communion, for example, the freedom we have in Christ. My verse I picked for this, Romans chapter 6, verse 6, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Christ in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Because Christ has died so that we consider ourselves dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus, verse 11. So we need to do things in our worship rhythms to remind ourselves, wow, I'm free in Christ. Yeah, I still sin, I still struggle, but yet even when I sin and struggle, I need to, I need to realize I'm for some reason choosing sin because it is not my master. That's a lie. We, we may be acting like it's our master, but we are free in the power of God's Spirit and His Word to be changed. We're free. Remember that. And finally, we need courage to stand no matter what, just like they did. We're surrounded by a culture that will not make it easy to be a follower of Jesus. John 16, Jesus predicted it. Here's what he said. These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world, you're going to have tribulation. Take courage. I've overcome the world. We know where everything ends. And Christ wins. Christ wins. We know our destiny in Christ is secure. We know we have eternal life through Christ. We know where history is headed to the glory of Christ. So no matter how yucked up our culture and confused our world, especially at this time during an election, you've got to remember you have no party that deserves your faith. Your faith needs to be planted in Christ. No matter how the politics end up playing out. 
So Jesus predicted it. And we need it. So what's the big idea of the morning? Have you put God at the center? And worship is designed to do that. So proud of a lot of you who are here ready to go this morning, ready to worship. You know, making worship a part of your weekly rhythm, making worship a part of your daily rhythm when you open the scriptures and read them, spend time alone with God, making worship a lifestyle as you live to the glory of God. Because worship is something we do together weekly, but we do it daily alone with God, and you do it as a lifestyle as you walk with God. At the workplace, at the schools, the neighborhoods, as you walk with God, Put Christ at the center of your life, or is he just a slice of your life? So you picture life as a pie. Is Jesus your Sunday slice, or is he at the center of the whole pie, and he radiates out into every dimension of your life? Relationships, work, school, everything. Putting God at the center is where you start. Pray with me. Father, thank you so much that you deserve to be at the center. And through Christ, uh, we don't need to offer burnt offerings anymore because you took care of that. And I pray, Father, that you would uh, help each of us pause for a second now as we, as we offer you up some praise and some worship. And I ask you to pray this prayer with me and say, Lord Jesus, don't be a slice of my life. Be the center. Be the center. Give me a heart that appreciates your grace and forgiveness that's given to us freely when we come to you. Give me a heart that is full of gratitude, is full of careful obedience, even full of courage to be who you want me to be Monday through Friday. Would you pray that? We worship you now in Christ's name. Amen.